And I remember leaving leaving Apple Shop and, and there's just like a point where you just get out of the holler and you're up on a point. And I really haven't told a lot of people this story, but I looked across the valley and I saw one of the mountains that was going through mountaintop removal. And it was a, like a moment of really deep awareness for me. Part of my practice is within a Zen tradition and I could describe it any number of ways in that way, but it was a moment, a really powerful moment for me. I just, like I pulled over and when I had stopped heaving in tears, like it, it just was a moment that, Rilke says this in his poem, the uh, archaic torso of Apollo. Just that moment where you realize that uh, there's no place that does not see you, you must change your life. And that really was the point where I just started to get a little more serious about what are the connections here between this thing I'm studying and the places I'm from that I value. That was poet, organizer, and policy wonk, Matthew Fluarty, talking about the moment that the seed for his work on behalf of rural communities and culture began to germinate. This episode, the second chapter, focusing on Matthew's work at Art of the Rural, will explore the continuing story of Sage, Illinois, the power of nostalgia, the iconic importance of bush light beer, and the amazing legacy of family video. This is Change the Story, Change the World. My name is Bill Cleveland. Part 4. Nostalgia. I'm hearing two things coming from you. One of them is something I think that America is really struggling with now, which is what's our story and what are the parts of my story that are connected to your story that we can honor and not feel defensive about. And the other one is a recognition that this stuff is all there and we don't have to decorate it. We don't have to get special lighting for it. Mm. We don't have to create an edifice around it. We don't have to make it any more precious or any more hard-edged than it already is. And you've touched on this in your writing about nostalgia and the role it plays in the dueling, bifurcated stories we're telling ourselves here in America about our pastoral past, with one being the yearning voice you know, of a home place, the geographies of love and land and its history, and the, and the other, a kind of heroic myth of loss and victimhood and resentment, uh, the kind of thing I experienced in extremis in Serbia during the time of Slobodan Milosevic. Could you say more about that? No, and it's interesting because a little nostalgia can go a long way when it's used <laughs> in the right way. It's, it's interesting, like I, for our work with High Visibility, which is a collaboration with the Plains Art Museum and uh, creativity amongst Native Americans. And we've done an, ex- an exhibition and a newspaper publication and a podcast. And it's interesting how in talking with a lot of artists, a lot of artists who are uh, working beyond the city, like they're really inhabiting this space. And I think it's a space truly like since 2016, like nostalgia has been like totally weaponized. It's there, it's being weaponized, yet, like as one of the fundamental materials for making a piece of art that can connect with folks, man, it's one of the ingredients sometimes. I mean, I think it would be a really hard intellectual challenge to feel deep emotional connection to a place without that being one of the emotions too. Yes. And that's that's a total meta-narrative of my relationship to our farm too. It's just, there's so many different things on the scales, but man, there's a space there 
for those two different kinds of nostalgia and how an artist can create a piece that makes us think about them both simultaneously. And the example that I would use that has felt just like really personally significant to my experience, there's a piece in the initial high visibility show by a stained glass and steel sculptor, primarily named Carl Unash, who is from Pilot Mound in Southern central Minnesota. And a lot of his work deals really directly with just everyday life in the rural places he knows well, but just everyday, just vernacular culture, you know, raising food, hunting, recreation, the buildings that, that folks find in those regions. And the piece that he contributed to high visibility was a stained glass and steel sculpture, probably eight feet, eight feet by about five feet. It's a sculpture of a crushed bush light can. And the sculpture, it wasn't realistic, the bush light logo. It's shaped in such a way, you have to sit with it to understand what it is. You can see it's a crushed thing, but what is it? It's such a complex and troubling mixture of those two things. Because just to be honest, for myself too, bush light is a nostalgic object for me. My experiences of bush light are with people in rural regions like our farm and a lot of folks in the Midwest. Like I know that's the thing for folks. It occupies that space. Head for the beer brewed natural as a mountain stream for a taste as smooth as its name. Well, that was really good. What's more? Sure. Head for You know you're in a rural place when you see the crushed bush like can on the side of the road. And so like we hold it really near and dear is this is this thing. You know where you are, you know who you are when you're having it, but then folks just throw it away so easily. So it becomes this totally other kind of object. And this is just me and my brain, but I mean, when January 6th went down, like that was the work of art I thought about the most for that reason, that there's, there was just like within that piece, this really deep emotional interior sense of a bunch of unresolved emotions. Carl Unsach spoke about the evolution of his sculpture called Husk in a podcast interview with Matthew in March of 2021. I self-quarantined for two weeks after I get back from California. So I got busy and cleaned and built and worked on my house and made more work. But also I had to move my ass and get away from the place. So I'm out in the country and go for a walk. As I'm walking, I may as well make myself useful. I get busy getting busy. So I pick up trash as I go. I got back and I noticed that it was mostly bush light cans. I was like, okay, this means something. Let's think about it. A couple whiskeys later, I think, you know what? That's the preferred beverage of the people that I'm familiar with in my region. I'm like, hmm. And then I got to thinking about why. That's the thing we do as artists. So I start thinking about why. Well, it's the cheapest for the buzz, but at the same time, it's, you know, pert near water. So you can drink quite a few and still say you're drinking beer and not driving the ditch. You know, these people throwing these out are, are booze cruising, just like we all grew up doing. However, I can honestly say I've never thrown a can out a window. You throw it in the back of the truck. <laughs> and then they pile up in the back. So I started taking pictures of them before I picked them up. So they start becoming my own little truffles, my own little morel mushrooms, my own little gnomes out in the woods. And every one is different. So I've been posting one on Instagram per day since I started doing that 
Uh, as of today, I think I'm up to 308. And then I started doing the piece. I started looking at the crushed can shape, a fetishized object from my culture, if I could say that. But yet, it's a chunk of litter that pisses me off. But yet, it's also a corporate item for someone to make more money off us, you know, poor folk out in the country. And yet, it's also a beautiful object. And yet, it's a malleable object. And yet, it could provide inspiration. And yet, I can still turn that into this dynamic concept of what it is that I'm and yetting to death. <laughs> so, I bought a 30-pack of Bush Light, got a friend to come over, and I started making maquettes in the studio, like you do. And I got to thinking about one of my favorite human figure-based sculptures, the Dying Gaul, and thinking about a rebellious, dying culture that just will not give up, which is a lot of what we see coming from the culture that I'm in. This white, misogynist, patriarchal culture is dying. Thank God. So my commentary on that is the people that I see around me that are digging in with their tooth and nail to not let go of this nostalgia are the new dying Gauls. And this is a perfect representation. So I considered the shape and form of this Vikingish biker type vandal figure dying, yet still trying to push away from gravity in one last effort. How can I transfer that to the shape of a crushed beer can? And I can definitively say it took a 30 pack of bush light in order to make a really cool sculpture. So Carl expands upon this much more eloquently than I can, but I just think we're in a place where the default is to go to one of those kinds of nostalgia. It's just so alluring to go to one of them, but to hold that space in the center where they're in mixture with each other. Just like the way, like, when there's a confluence, the two, those two tributaries come together and you can tell that they're coming from different places. That feels like spiritually where I am. Part five, the mural. So imagine that somebody's listening to this and really, like your uncle, is looking for a concrete example of how this manifests and what happens when it does. Mm. Uh, is there a story, given your experience in various communities, that, that you feel personifies the complex elements of your work and its impact? Yeah, thanks. I think I have a memory that, that hopefully speaks to this. So maybe going back to that town, Asage, Illinois, for a second. So the newspaper that we make there is called the American Bottom Gazette. And the most recent issue of the American Bottom Gazette had a focus on Soje. They really came out of conversations and interviews and just time spent in that small community. I mentioned that Monsanto began that community for its chemical works. It has about 150 people in it because that was how many people you need to have in incorporated town. So it has this really uncertain designation because it feels rural in the way that a rural town with a single factory or something in it would feel but it's across the river from a major American city and has been a site for Monsanto's work. At various points, that factory had been really crucial in you know, building the components for Agent Orange and any number of things. So you have this small community that has 
three Superfund sites in it, has a reputation throughout the entire region as being a sewer, basically. That's the sort of popular cultural association of Soje. So if it was written about, it was written about in a very one-dimensional way, in a way of talking about a community destroyed by industry, as if there was not generational knowledge there, cultural practices there, as if people didn't get together at the diner in Soje and have lunch every day. And the hamburgers at that diner are incredible. There's all this stuff there. Like human beings are living lives. Mm-hmm. And the example that I would use to that question about the complexity is when we brought the newspaper to Soje, we had a, an event that basically was just cookout. Diner grilled up a bunch of hamburgers and hot dogs. And we were in Soje City Hall in the room where the city council would meet, which also is like the big event space for, for this town. And we had the newspapers. And when folks gather in City Hall, behind them is a mural. And it's a mural of all of the various industrial practices that happened in Soje for the last 80 years. It's incredible. It's absolutely incredible. And that mural in and of itself is really complicated because a lot of folks in that community have passed from cancer. It's a challenging place to live environmentally. And one of the, the town elders was in the space. And, you know, we didn't ask this community elder to do this, but he just went up there and narrated those companies. And through the way that he just talked about the history of the place, it was really complex because it wasn't a rah-rah story about how this town has always supported American industry. It didn't have a political angle to it. It, it just talked about what happened and the experiences that folks had living through that. And that story ended in a place of ambiguity which I never would have expected. And it didn't end with a declaration, but just like a question of what, what's gonna come next? What are we gonna do together? That was a really powerful moment for me. It's a space I think a lot of folks in the region would not have even given folks the agency to articulate in Soje. And if folks came to this cookout, they were interested in like what the heck was happening with his newspaper, but they brought their own photo albums too. And there were about five or six folks who, it just was, I just get goosebumps thinking about it just like how many powerful stories were in there. And it was really beautiful because Soje is going to be 100 in 2026. And I think that folks bringing those photo books together, I think is going to lead to something else, some different story the community wants to tell. But I think that's probably, that is probably the example that jumps to my mind first, only because I think, I think to a lot of folks would seem really unlikely that something like that could occur in that kind of space. But that's really, that was for me, one of the most powerful moments in my work with Art of the World. Two things jump out for me from that. Number one is how often when someone else tells your story, it gets packaged. We watch TV, there's an expectation that at the end of It's a Wonderful Life, there's a speech that makes you be able to go on to the next movie, right? And people, when they tell their own story, sometimes they do that, but more often than not, it especially someone who's lived through the ups and the downs, they both get equal space and you don't draw the easy conclusion from that. The other one is just a reference, the Wing Luke Museum in Seattle. And Wing Luke is devoted to the history of Asian life in Seattle, which is to a large extent was buried, ignored or distorted And the guy who took over the creation of the museum, he was a journalist. 
So he was not a museum professional. And his approach was, well, I just do what I do. You know, the research is to go ask, have you got anything going on that might be interesting for this museum? And they had years and years and years of stuff that came out of people's Mm -hmm. attics that actually ended up as the major exhibitions that they have had over decades. Mm -hmm. And it it was basically a, a gigantic body of story just straining to be expressed. And and as you have said, you start with the artifact. I got this from my attic. And you can go back, at least in that case, you can go back 600 years to the stories of these families that started in, in Vietnam or China or Japan. And the same thing is there. I, you know, those those books are the portal into the dense complex, sometimes disturbing history of those communities. That's just what rose up for me. You know, and what I think is powerful with that example, and it's something that we try to be attuned to across all of our various work at Art of the Rural, is like a museum operating out of that, like Keats would call it negative capability. Like you're not, you're being and existing without grasping towards an answer. To operate out of that way of being and to be a museum or an institution that will be there for decades to come. There's a durational thing that I think is like so important. And so, I mean, it's, we, we all need it. I think in particular, oftentimes in communities and areas outside of the city, we have neither that attention you're talking about simply to the story and letting the story lead something. We have a lack of institutions that we know will mm-hmm. be there for more than one generation. Mm-hmm. This is a way of thinking about that, that I definitely owe that perspective to Carlton Turner and Dudley, Dudley Cock for sure. So Dudley at Apple Shop and Carlton at both Alternate Roots and Sip Culture personify the covenant I think they would agree needs to be forged between culture bearers and their community. Like the work is more than just an archival service. It's a sacred responsibility to the story of the people in their home place that has both practical everyday social importance and a spiritual gravity. Would you agree? Yeah, oh, absolutely. Part six, family video. Now to switch channels rather abruptly, I have a rather strange question for you. Family video. Would you care to comment? Ooh, man. Mm, family video. Thank you for asking this question. I'm trying to think about how I talk about family video in under 45 minutes. So anybody listening, Matthew has a, an Instagram account, and there's an amazing group of photos and poetry and and most of the photos are one-offs but there is a group of photos of various angles on a big giant neon sign that says family video so it just said to me oh there's something going on here (laughs) oh wow yeah i'm grateful that you've asked about family video because I think it's just like a process for me to learn something. It doesn't have to become anything other than that, but it goes to duration. So what family video taught me that I've applied to a couple other projects, I also document snow piles in Winona. There's some work documenting pallets. There's a couple other projects like that. And I was really influenced by a book 
It's called Everything Sings by Dennis Wood. Dennis Wood calls himself a rebel cartographer. And it's an entire book about just his neighborhood in a town in North Carolina. And what really challenged me and really shook me was that his aesthetic was like, I can show you what the map of this community looks like. I can show you the aerial bird's eye with the roads and property lines and all that. Or I can show you all of these other ways of what life is like in that community. I can show it to you visually. And so Everything Sings is a visual representations of the community based on where are the streetlights and how far does the light radiate? What did every Halloween jack-o'-lantern look like in a single year in this neighborhood? Like all of these different ways. Like I mean, it goes back to the everyday life, like these things that we can brush over a million times, but they're the keys to us understanding that deeper interior emotional resonance about where we are. And so I had moved to Winona, having loved that book for a couple of years. And really what kicked it off was like, there was one day where I had to take my car in to the shop to get the tires changed or something like that. And I walked all the way down there and dropped it off and got all the way back home and realized I had left the keys to my house in the car. And I walked back and on the way walking back the second time, I noticed the family video Family Video is formerly a chain. Of, it's like a blockbuster, largely in the Midwest. I think a lot of Family Videos have closed. There maybe aren't many left at this point. But anyway, I just took a photo of it. I looked kind of beautiful in the snow and the parking lot was interesting. It leads to questions around what was that land used for before then? You can trace that all the way back to settler colonialism. And suddenly a rental video parking lot takes on a whole resonance it didn't before. And what that space opened up for me was it was really intense for about a year where I basically, I would go at least once a week and photograph that building or the parking lot from a different angle to keep mm -hmm. refreshing that feeling of just defamiliarizing myself to, to that place. And it's wild. Like we're talking about th those diner conversations, like what that opens up. And when I was a small enough town that people began to see that I was the person photographing family video. You hear from folks who worked in that building when it was a Burger King, who worked in there, like behind there is an army, army ROTC building. It was pipe bombed once. Like all of these connective stories come into view. It was even a rogue Burger King after the owners of the building lost their Burger King franchise. And they were selling like unmarked Burger King Whoppers and white bags. These are the things. It's just beautiful, like how these stories all come together. But it really taught me something. It got a lot more interesting and it got way deeper the longer I did it. That's really what that work taught me. And so I've applied that in, in the creative work, but it's mostly private. It's just like, I literally do have this archive of the snow piles in my community. You know, I, at some point I will make an impassioned argument for the snow pile as a work of art, as a sculpture, <laughs> it'll, it's some comedic form that I'll take shape, but just like these things that are all around us that if I'm just really focused on getting to the grocery store, I'm going to, I'm not going to see it, but then somebody comes along and it's seen. And I'm so grateful you brought up because when the family video closed, I made some connections with the folks who worked there. And I have have some of the material from inside the store. Like I have the training DVD. Feel, but you still see, you know, some of the more modern uh, Blu-ray and 4K releases. Here we're just looking at the new releases signs. I have those. I have the faux director's there. chair that here is the, the employees uh, would sit in, and uh, it's definitely a thing I'm, I want to work on as a slow burn. But what family video can lead me back to in this larger kind of cultural conversation that we have was that lesson around the duration. And, mm. 
An artist that I really love, his name is An Kawara. He was a conceptual artist working primarily out of New York City. He would send a postcard to someone every single morning that simply would say, I woke up at, or I went to sleep at, you know, in my own sort of like the analogous sort of practice I have in um, Buddhism and Zen Buddhism. I was like, this is a real practice of awareness. And what it led me to in early 2016, that's a project that I think will be public probably in the next couple of months, maybe just on that Instagram page, but hopefully elsewhere later is that I started cutting out photographs from our newspaper here in Winona, but also other rural newspapers. Because a large part of my work is traveling. And I always would, of course, you get the newspaper. You get the newspaper in the community and you get it at the Casey's or the Quick Trip or the Interstate gas station. It's just, there's great pleasure and great knowledge inside of it. But Family Video really is a project that is a micro version of this way more in-depth, insightful and or absolutely ridiculous project. I believe, I believe it has a lot of value, but it could also be ridiculous. Where I've archived at this point, thousands of photographs from rural newspapers. They're in archival boxes in another part of this room. I feel like this is within the Sojay story, but also just in so much of your work. Part of the reason that we're asking questions and listening to stories and sharing those stories in various forms is because we believe that they have the power to change community and to change our sense of self, but also because they will be lost unless we do. And what my, my grandma, who I mentioned, also wrote for the newspaper. My grandpa wrote for a newspaper. He was a sports writer. And rural journalism right now is, is in a state of absolute crisis. And there's a certain part of the conversation about visual culture that talks about the black and white photo postcard of the early 20th century. That really existed from the teens through the 30s. And it's the earliest visual record we have of some rural communities. It's a totally anonymous form, but it was people in rural communities photographing their families and their community, their loved ones, their Model Ts, their horses, all that stuff. And it marks a moment that's gone. And in early 2016, it occurred to me that we were living through a moment of absolute radical change that we would only be able to see in retrospect. Mm. And it became clear to me that Newspaper photography, which is in some respects a very the most discredited form of photography in the academy, that that actually that's going to be the place where we go to ask what happened, where what was the visual record of the change that we were encountering, and that's how I started. It's an archive of physical prints, and they're from the newspaper, and in some cases, I believe maybe the only existing examples of some of these photographs. So it's a thing that maybe started as an art project, but is an archive and you'll Billy, you'll appreciate this. Like I started archiving those images against images that of rural non-urban places that were appearing in the wall street journal and the New York times. And the difference between those two image sets is like it, to me, it tells the story of the last five years with so much complexity and depth, so much complexity and depth that I think is missing, still missing in how we're talking about this problem. Part seven, layers and layers. So there, you just built a bridge to one, one of my most persistent questions of the last probably 10 years and with increasing intensity in the last five years is our ability to, to be different and be okay with it. We're built on difference. And so where's the okay part come from? 
it's interesting. I was really attracted to archaeology when I was a kid. Uh-huh. And it was the part that I was most interested in was the guys and the women in the trenches with the brushes and the layers, right? And how they had to pay att- attention to that and be delicate with it all. Mm. And then every once in a while, find a thing and then figure out what the heck that's all about. So I've been thinking about modern life as if it's archaeology, the layers are getting covered over much more quickly. So if we're digging, we're going to find 15 chapters where once there was three, you know, in the layers. And the whole story about the newspaper photographs and the Wall Street Journal photographs, those are two different digging in two different places. And archaeologists come up with this all the time. Oh, my God, we got contradictory stories here that the land is telling us, right? Here's a catastrophe. Here's this long period of multi-layered complexity, one on top of another. And how do you read these together? That's a skill set. And to my mind, we're more and more in a world where the data is available, but who's translating? And one of the groups of people that need to start rolling up their sleeves are artists who are often seeing the dots that others aren't. Or just have a skill set that says, oh, here's the metaphors that are emerging here, and let's go down that road. Let's find how those things connect, and let's make it so that other people can look at it and go, I recognize this, but but I've never lived in that place before, and I don't even know this story, but I recognize this pattern in the world. I recognize that yearning mm. to, uh, to be with that brush and uncover the thing, and I don't like not knowing where I've been because I'm. it makes me feel lost. And I think one of the things we're experiencing is more and more people who either indirectly or directly are looking at a map and they can't read it or they've lost their map or they can't see the horizon and they're scared. And humans don't do real well when a lot of us get scared together. We're really funky with our with each other that way. And So keep taking those photographs and put them together. I could see them already juxtaposed. And with a thing above it says, what does this say to you? (laughs) Yeah, it's a Rorschach on on all levels. The rural newspapers are a really interesting one for um, the story. You know, and and depending on where you are, a rural newspaper has a really particular perspective based on who the editor and the publisher are. And there, there are those ways in which it can be warped. But like I have to say, I love the archaeological image. Because this is, we're having this conversation about the work and the practice. We're also two people who are called upon at different points to talk about the support structures that are around that. So like I've been monitoring the Wall Street Journal since the market collapsed in late March of last year, just to see what is the representation here. And in many respects, the Wall Street Journal's representation of rural places, I feel, is like profoundly honest. These are sites of extraction for businesses. They're sites that relate to carbon sequestration, like the layers you're talking about, these metaphors. But then there is the New York Times. I subscribe to it. I am grateful it comes every day. But it's much more complicated for the New York Times because the New York Times also seeks to articulate a wide cultural mandate. And there's a really in-depth story about a community 30 minutes east of Salt Lake City in yesterday's paper that is running out of water. You have stories like that. You have stories that like the perennial story about like 
how are rural people voting like every five weeks approach or their stories about Trump country and mm -hmm. the roots of the insurrection on January 6th. And mm -hmm. in and of themselves, those are fine. But to be honest, out of the five years I've been doing this project, only a few times has the arts and culture section covered a project working outside of the city. So the preeminent arts and culture section in our most important newspaper simply does not cover any arts and cultural material, save very few pieces occasionally that are coming out about Indian country. But it's a vacuum. And we ask mm -hmm. ourselves why we have this geographic political chasm right now. It is one of the really clear mm -hmm. indicators of it to me, but not out of malice. I think this is what I love about the archeological image is that like, it is at one level deeply psychological and it's learned. You know, what you just pointed out, I think reflects the importance of what we've been talking about here all along. You know, just giving folks in these communities the floor to gather, and share their stories and break bread. And as you mentioned, creating the conditions for folks where all the seemingly random dots in the sky that are out there, where all these stories become connected into a constellation, you know, that makes sense. I'm kind of reminded of my friend Judy Baca, the muralist and activist who came to this small rural town in the Central Valley of California and got all the kids in the community to interview their parents and grandparents and have them share the hard and often really contradictory stories that have defined grower, farm worker life and history there in the heart of America's breadbasket over the last century. And, you know, the mural they produced was not about the story, but was about a lot of stories juxtaposed next to, on top of, nearby each other, on the wall, so that there was, you know, no single voice authoritative version of that contested history, but in fact a recognition and hopefully a learning from both the harmony and the dissonance of all those layers appearing together. Yeah, I think one of, one of the practices that has informed my work at Art of the Rural and just the work with other folks in other places has been looking at how we apply practices to place and land and doing it with no expectations really that it's just like a process for me to learn something. You know, you know what I mean? Absolutely. You just boiled it down. You know, it's hard to learn if your expectations clog your ears and fog your visions. You can't learn if you think you already know the answer, which is why uh, curiosity and respect and humility that are at the center of what you do matters so much. Thanks. Thanks for that distilled wisdom. And Matthew, thank you so much for spending this time. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank uh, you. Gosh, this was fantastic. Absolutely. Take it easy, man. Oh, uh, take it easy. Bill. Thanks so much. And thank you listeners for spending time with us here in this virtual pod universe, which we are very aware is a crowded space competing for your time. If you do like what we've been up to for the past two years, we would love for you to join us in the growing Change the Story community by subscribing to the show via your podcast provider, sharing the show with your friends and colleagues, and if you want to learn more about arts and community change around the world, 
avail yourself free of charge of our Change the Story collection of episodes on specific subjects like public safety, education, organizing, art and medicine, and racial justice, which you can find at the Center for the Study of Art and Communities website, www.artandcommunity.com, under the podcast tab, or via the link in our show notes. Change the Story, Change the World is a production of the Center for the Study of Art and Community. It's written and hosted by me, Bill Cleveland. Our theme and soundscape are by the stupendously talented Judy Munson. Our text editing is by Andre Nebe. Our sound effects come from freesound.com, and our inspiration rises up from the spectral and lurking presence of Ook 235. If you have any comments to share or suggestions for guests, drop us a line at csac at artandcommunity.com. Until next time, stay well, do good, and spread the good word. Bye.